The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, Fountain of Life. Thank you for tuning in. Um, it's an honor and privilege to share this moment, this time with you as we set our minds on the Lord and His Word. This morning, we are diving back into our study through the book of Revelation. We'll be in Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. Again, that's Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 to 5, and it's my hope and prayer that this text would really encourage us to pray, and especially to devote this first week of the new year to prayer. Hopefully, this passage will encourage us to do that. Again, it's Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. Let's hear the word of the Lord. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumbling, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you uh, needing, needing your help, needing your mercy. Lord, as created things, we're dependent on you as our creator. Lord, as Christians, we're dependent on you as our Father in heaven. As sinners, we are dependent on the Lord Jesus, what he's done to save us. We are dependent on your Holy Spirit. Lord, our world uh, needs your mercy. Um, our hearts need your care your provision, your grace. Lord, we thank you for this time to come and sit under your word. We pray that your spirit would work in each one who hears. Lord, that you would draw us to yourself according to your word. And Lord, especially that you would draw us into more purposeful, more passionate prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So here we are the first Sunday of 2021 and we need to think about prayer. I wonder, how do you feel about prayer? Um, how would you grade your own prayer life? Maybe uh, you'd agree, for many Christians, I know this is true for me, prayer is easier to praise than to practice. Uh, we're ready to affirm that prayer is so important. Do we practice it like we praise it? I wonder, do we pray with purpose? Do we go after it like we do other passions in our lives? Perhaps not. There's probably several reasons for this. One is prayer is hard. It's work. Uh, it can be confusing. We have questions. And maybe worst of all, sometimes prayer can feel worthless. I heard one pastor say, um, even more difficult than the problem of evil is the problem of nothing. And he was talking about prayer. Uh, we remember the problem of evil is figuring out that the answer to that hard question of how can there be a good, all-powerful God and all this evil and suffering? 
That's an important question, and I'm not going to try to answer it this morning. But that pastor was saying that even harder sometimes than the problem of evil is the problem of nothing. And what he meant by was this reality that sometimes when we pray, we feel like nothing happened. We wonder, did our, did our prayer get lost? Um, was our prayer too stupid or foolish or too poorly presented to get heard? The problem of nothing sometimes perhaps keeps us from praying. That reminded me this week of how many times, as recorded in the Bible, God's people have prayed something like this, how long, O Lord? Psalm 6.3, my soul also is greatly troubled, but you, how long, O Lord, how long? Psalm 13.1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Then there's Psalm 35, 17. How how long, O Lord, will you look on? Then in Revelation 6, the the fifth seal, Revelation 6, 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Again and again, we get the phrase, how long, O Lord? What does that that communicate to you? It's, oh God, do you even see? Do you even hear? Are you going to act? You know, I do find it amazing that God has inspired a phrase like this to be in the prayers in his inspired word. Isn't that wonderful? Evidently, he knows how prayer will often feel to us. And he also knows that how long, O Lord, will not be the final word. In fact, the problem of nothing, as we see in our text today, will one day be shown to be not a problem at all. We should keep praying. Maybe you should start praying and we should pray earnestly. So we're returning to our study through the book of Revelation. Uh, We remember that Revelation is here to remind God's people of the true story of the world. And Revelation's core message is that Jesus is king. Jesus is the eternal son of God who came and took on flesh, lived a perfect life, representing us, died on the cross for our sins, rose literally from the dead, and now reigns. He reigns over the kings on earth. He reigns over this age of tribulation. Yes, we should expect difficulty, even persecution. But Jesus is so good, so sovereign, that we are to follow him loyally according to his word, no matter the cost, knowing that he is worth it. So we'll remind ourselves just a little of where we've been in our study through this book. Of course, Revelation is not your normal genre of literature, is it? It's full of Old Testament imagery, symbolism. But we've seen so far that Revelation is framed by these series of sevens. So in the beginning of the book, we have this majestic vision of Jesus followed by seven letters to his churches. And those taught us how we ought to live in this world for Jesus as our King. Then we had in chapters four to five, a vision of the throne room of God. And there was this scroll representing God's plan for human history with seven seals, seven churches, seven seals. We saw that only Jesus is worthy to open this scroll. 
In chapter six, we see that he has begun to open it. He began to open seal after seal. If you'd like to hear the teaching on that, you can find it on our website. We're actually here in the beginning of chapter eight, about to get to that seventh seal. And as that seventh seal is open, well, what do you see? Well, you see another set of seven. You'll see seven trumpets. But we'll get to those trumpets next week. This morning, we're just gonna look at chapter one, verses eight to five. And what we find here as this seventh seal is open is another pause. There's this deep silence. And there's three basic parts to this text. I think it's fairly clear. Number one, it's what I wanna call the awful silence. You see that in verse one. Then second, you see the idea of incense rising, verses two to four. And then third, it's the idea of a censer throne. So awful silence, incense rising, a censer throne. Now, obviously we have some work to do to try to unpack what these things mean. But I think what we'll see is that in this passage, there is an incredible encouragement to pray. An incredible encouragement to pray. And it's my prayer that this passage would encourage us as a church to draw closer to God in more purposeful prayer. So let's begin. We'll start with the awful silence. You see this in verse one. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. In the nearby context of Revelation, this silence really stands out as being rather strange. For instance, back in chapter six in the sixth seals, uh, unbelievers are crying out, begging to escape the just wrath of Jesus when he returns. And in chapter seven is full of sound, massive sound as people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worship God together in heaven forever in, in perfect happiness as God wipes away their every tear. So it's been loud in chapter six and chapter seven. By the way, as we just remember chapter seven, you could almost think that the book would end there, couldn't you? I mean, just think about it. Chapter six was final judgment, the return of Jesus Christ to judge and renew the world. And then chapter seven was this vision of heaven, God's people satisfied forever in the presence of God. You could think, well, this, would, this could just be the end. And then you realize there's 15 chapters left. What's well, important to understand as we interpret this book, don't read Revelation as chronological history. Certainly, we can believe that John gave the visions as they came to him chronologically, but the visions don't represent how history comes chronologically. Obviously they can't because there's a lot of content coming after this picture of final judgment and heaven. Now what's gonna happen is we're gonna see new themes that are so important for us. Moreover, we're gonna see some themes repeated again with greater clarity, greater intensity. So then we ask, you know, what does this silence mean? Well, like nearly everything in Revelation, we learn more about what's going on as we study uh, the echo of these symbols that come from the Old Testament. We wanna look to the, under, to the Old Testament and see how those ideas are used there in order to understand what John is saying here in Revelation. That's one of those in, important clues for interpreting this book. We've got to read Revelation biblically. It's stuffed full of allusions to the Old Testament, these pictorial references of Old Testament themes. We've got to unpack those. 
And so as we, as we, if we would look through some sections of the Old Testament and think about this idea of silence, we learn something. Silence is often equated with this sober quiet right before the storm as God finally and powerfully acts and comes on the scene with justice. Here's one example from the prophet Zephaniah, Zephaniah 1.7. The prophet says, be silent before the Lord God for the day of the Lord is near. You know, if you read Zephaniah chapter one, this is, this is no light thing. This is, this is the idea of being caught red-handed and the holy God who knows all is perfectly good, perfectly just. He's coming to act Same thing with Habakkuk, chapter two, verse 20. The prophet there says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. We we remember that the living God of the Bible is both the creator of the earth and the judge of the earth. God has given life, designed life, upholds all life, and yet human life rails against him in rebellion. In Habakkuk, it shows us that we've challenged God with our idols. There's things we love and serve and rely on more than him. We've displaced him. We wanna assert our own authority above him. And God comes to answer that challenge. The one who knows is going to act and he will show that he is truly the authority. So we see then that this Old Testament use of silence, these moments of silence, shows us it's this sober moment before judgment falls. And that fits the context here in Revelation, doesn't it? This period of silence happens before the seal is opened and trumpets of judgment are blown on the earth. This is why I'm calling this first point an awful silence. And by awful, I mean full of awe. Awesome is probably one of the most overused and misused words in our language. But if you remember kind of the core meaning of that word awesome, it has to do with dread, amazement at something fearful, something wonderful, something that just absolutely demands all of your attention, something so dominating that it actually shuts you up that sometimes when something is so great, so fearful, so beautiful, you, you almost are forced to forget yourself and your own opinions, and you're just caught up with this something else, this someone else. This silence shows us with awful clarity, the world is not really about us. And we remember some of just who God is That's what this silence is about. It's remembering some of just who God is. And that ought to teach us something about prayer, don't you think? Ought to teach us something about prayer. When we pray uh, amazingly, supposedly, we are coming into fellowship with the living God. And that calls sometimes for silence, to remember who he is. A couple of principles I think are implied by this idea that really help us with our prayer. Number one, silence reminds us to be humble and submissive. 
Silence reminds us to be humble and submissive. You know, I guess it's easy sometimes to waltz into God's presence as if he's a vending machine that exists to kind of meet our needs as we see them. Is, is, that, is that who we're praying to? Is that who we're in fellowship with? We ought to be humble. Um, look at Romans three nineteen. Here Paul says, now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth will be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That's something to remember. We're accountable to God. And when we stand before his law, all our excuses um, pop like balloons and every mouth is stopped. There's just nothing to say. He's holy. We're sinful. We ought to come with humility, with confession. I was reminded of something else as well. You know, we, we see in scriptures, Jesus went to the cross in silence. He did not revile his enemies. He did not defend himself. Why was he able to do that? Do you remember what he prayed in the garden before the cross? What did he pray? Your will be done. And truly, that's the greatest, most amazing picture of submission that there ever was or could be. And so this idea of silence reminds us to be humble and submissive before this God to whom we are praying because we're remembering just who he is. Second, I think silence reminds us to be dependent in prayer, to be dependent. Look at what God said to Israel with the Red Sea in front of them and the army of Egypt behind them. This is Exodus 14, 14. It reads, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to do what? Be silent. Israel only had one hope in this moment. It certainly wasn't themselves. They had a sea before them. They could not handle in their own strength. They had the armies of Egypt behind them. They could not handle in their own strength. There's only one thing they could do and that showed them exactly how little they could do. They could do nothing but be silent. And it signifies, doesn't it? A total dependence on God, total dependence on God. In silence, remembering some of just who God is, we see how great he is and how small we are. And so that response then is just to depend on him alone, to rely on him. The ultimate issue is not our strength, our performance, or our deeds. We depend on God for his mercy, rely on his grace. Silence can remind us of that. Number three, silence, I think, reminds us to be God-centered. You know, last week we talked about being devoted to God and his word. And we hope you got that prayer or that uh, Bible reading plan and that you're devoting yourself to uh, a deep interaction with God through his word. So we talked about his word, uh, reading his word last week. This week we're talking about being devoted to prayer. That order is on purpose. God speaks first. God reveals first. You know, it's, it's so easy, isn't it? To come to God kind of simmering with self, our needs, our concerns. And, and don't get me wrong, we are to come to him with ourselves. And he invites us, even commands us to pour out our hearts to him. So I'm not demeaning that in any way, we need it. What I'm saying is, what if he spoke first? As indeed he has. What if we were silent 
before him, remembering just who it is whose presence we have entered. I wonder, do you ever sit in silence before God after encountering him in his word? It could change your perspective. You might find yourself more God-centered. Finally, regarding silence, I think silence reminds us to anticipate. It reminds us to anticipate. Look at Zechariah chapter two, verse 10. The prophet there writes, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come. I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And down in verse 13, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. In this, in this case, God's people are singing while the unbelieving world is silent. And the reason for that is that God will here act for his people according to his promises. And so then these moments of silence have a sense of anticipation. This is the living God. He sees, he hears, he acts. You know, maybe you wondered why, why silence for half an hour in this passage in Revelation? Um, here's what I think. Um, to me, the idea of an hour in Revelation is kind of like an alarm going off. Revelation 14, seven, the hour of God's judgment has come. So the hour represents this important time that's coming right on schedule. It's time to act. So maybe then half an hour gives the idea of suddenness and unexpectedness of God's action. It happened more quickly and stronger and more definitively than we thought it would. We should pray then in silence with anticipation. We're talking to the living God. He does things. He is mighty. So this, this first point then is, this awful silence, full of awe, where we remember just who God is and that forms how we praise or how we pray. Second, we see incense rising. You see that in verses two to four. Incense rising, verses two to four. Um, there's these seven angels standing before God. They're given seven trumpets. It's our next set of seven in this book. And again, we wanna to look to the Old Testament to understand what's going on. Trumpets in the Old Testament often signify the shocking arrival of God in victory. So you remember the sound of trumpets when God came on Mount Sinai to meet his people. You know, God has come, it's time, let's meet with him. Or you think of God's judgment on the city of Jericho through Israel. Trumpets were blown repeatedly. Again, it's an announcement that God has seen, God has heard, God is acting, God has come. The shocking arrival of God in victory, that's often what trumpets can mean. And that's what's occurring here in Revelation. These trumpets are gonna be blown and God is gonna act in judgment. But trumpets aren't quite the point yet here. Something just so beautiful and intimate is happening before these trumpets are blown. You see this idea of this angel before this altar in heaven, offering a massive amount of incense before God. Well, what does this mean? Again, 
Uh, we have to learn from Old Testament imagery. We've got to read Revelation biblically. You do that and you'll remember that the tabernacle and the temple had this golden altar devoted to the burning of incense. You can read about this in uh, Exodus 30, other places. You see, God was very specific about this. It was a specific incense to be offered. But it, you, don't, you don't make up your own. You follow his, uh, his list, his rules, his recipe, specific incense. It's to be offered by specific people. Not just anyone offers this. It's the priests who bring it. It's to be offered in a special place, this golden altar representing the glory of God. And it's... Um, right here before the Holy of Holies. And it was to be offered constantly, continually, this incense to God. And that altar, as I said, sat right before the Holy of Holies. Remember, that's this, this place that's set apart with a large veil covering it. It separates sinful people from the presence of a holy God. It's kind of amazing for me to realize only two things really ever get into the holy place. Number one, it's the priest on the day of atonement when the sacrifice is offered for the sins of the people so that they can enjoy fellowship with God. But the second thing that's getting in there is the smoke of this incense from the censer rising up. And the smoke of that incense was so often described as fragrant, valuable, pleasing to God. Okay, so what does this mean? What are we, what are we supposed to do with it? Should we, should, we make a, should we make an altar and light up some incense so that our prayers can be heard? Well, no, no. Read Revelation biblically, read it symbolically. Do you remember who it is opening this seal, the beginning of Revelation 8? 8 verse one, when the lamb opened the seventh seal. Uh, who's the lamb? Well, of course we know this is Jesus. Why is he called the lamb? Because he's the ultimate priest who offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of his people when he died on the cross. That's why Jesus himself said in the gospels that he is the true temple, the real temple. It's through him we are brought into the holy presence of God as loved, forgiven sinners. We got to remember the gospel story here. We are sinners, each one, right? Resistant to God challenging his authority with our own, self-centered, replacing him with counterfeits, a heart rebellion shown in the breaking of his law. We deserve his just wrath. And yet God is so gracious and so merciful that he sent his son to become a human in order to earn and accomplish the salvation of his people. Jesus lived a perfect life for us. That's why he's a spotless lamb, no blemish. Jesus died on the cross as our substitute, taking upon himself the wrath of God we deserve for our sin. And his work was vindicated in his literal resurrection of the dead. You know, we remember here that in Matthew's gospel, as Jesus is dying on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God himself broke down the barrier that separated his sinful people from him because through the work of Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. Through the work of Jesus Christ, through faith in him, we are given his righteousness, counted righteous, so we can be adopted into God's presence as children. 
What does that mean? Knowing Jesus is the true temple, what does this mean for this incense? What's the true incense? Well, you see it, didn't you? They're the prayers of God's people. It's the prayers of God's people. The true fulfillment of this incense, so valuable, so fragrant to God, is the prayers of those who trust themselves to Jesus, pouring out their hearts to him. Pouring out prayer and dependent prayers to their father, according to his word. Church, you gotta know this. You gotta be encouraged by this. Your prayers are a delight to God. They rise up like incense. He smells them. They're fragrant to him. What does that symbol teach you? He loves your prayers. God delights in your prayers. As we think of this incense going up and what it means, there's two really important principles for prayer. Number one, come to God through Jesus Christ. Come to God through Jesus Christ. All that stuff about the altar, the incense, the temple, it shows us very clearly. We are not to make our own way to God. In fact, we cannot. We don't design what it means to worship God. We don't design what God is like. Always don't lead to God, at least not to acceptance by God. We're not to invent things as we prefer them. No, the real God comes to us. He makes the way for us to come to him. And that way is through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done. The Father has ordained that Jesus is the way to bring you into fellowship with him. So I just wonder, have you repented of your sin, of your heart and life of rebellion against God? Have you looked to Jesus and what he's done? Are you relying on him to save you, to make you right with God? His promises are true. Trust Jesus, come to God through Jesus Christ. And then in Christ, Come boldly, come boldly. What a, what a thrill to realize that God delights in our prayers. Hebrews 4, 16 says this, and it's, in, it's with the mind that Jesus is our priest, the one who brings us near. Hebrews 4, 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Draw near with confidence. And I think part of that confidence is knowing that God delights in your prayers. You know, prayer can seem so difficult, so tedious. Prayer with others can be frustrating. There's so many obstacles to prayer. But listen, we have good help for prayer. Romans 8, 26 says this. Uh, in the context here, we groan, right? We're groaning in this broken world. We're groaning with our need for God. We're groaning with desire for him to keep his promises to us. Romans eight twenty six, Paul says, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. There it is. But the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. See, God has us. For those of you who've trusted Christ, the father has you in his embrace through the right arm of his son and the salvation he's accomplished through the 
the other arm of his Holy Spirit who is with us, who helps us, who prays for us. God is bringing us to himself. And so we are to pray to the Father through Jesus by the power and encouragement of the Holy Spirit. And we can come boldly. We can come knowing our prayers are fragrant and we don't need to say it just right or have all the answers or try to impress God or others with uh, putting the words together just so. No, come boldly and come kind of in the streamline of how God brings you, coming through Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit according to the truths and values of his word. So we've seen so far the awful silence to remember who God is as we pray. And then we've seen the incense rising. God treasures the prayers of his people through Jesus Christ. The third thing to see is the censer throne. The censer throne. We see this in verse five. The angel took the censer. That would be this pan where the stuff, the, the coals are burned, where the incense comes from. Took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, throws it on the earth. And there's peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Of course, the censer and the incense go together. Uh, the censer burns, the smoke goes up. So the angel, uh, part, part of this is our prayers. And part of this is what? The angel throws it out on earth. And what do you get? Thunder, lightning, power, and earthquake. Creation itself shakes. And as you continue to read, we get down to verse six, the angels who have the trumpets prepare to blow them. What will these trumpets bring? Well, we're gonna look at this more next week, but we will see that the, the results of these trumpets sound a lot like what God did to Egypt when he delivered Israel from slavery. It's massive, overwhelming, judgment. And we'll try to unpack this in the weeks to come, but here's what I want you to see this morning. God's terrible judgments on earth are the direct answer to the prayers of his people. God acting in strength and power is in response to the prayers of his people. The incense goes up, the censer is thrown out. You know, in Revelation 5, we see uh, the martyrs there, those suffering persecution, praying, how long, O Lord, how long will you let this go on? And the answer here in God's timing, about 30 minutes. It seems long to us, it seems so long but from the eternal perspective of God and him knowing what he's gonna do and how he's gonna vindicate his people and save his people and bless his people. Oh no, the idea here is prayers are heard and answers are coming and they will come definitively and they will come in ways that make our eyes pop and our jaws drop. God works for his glory according to the prayers of his people. If that doesn't motivate you to wanna pray, I don't know what will. And sometimes we ask, if God is sovereign, he knows everything, he's in control of everything, he has a plan for everything, he's gonna do what he's gonna do, why pray at all? It's a good question. Um, and it is true, when you pray, you're not telling God stuff, uh, you know, new things he doesn't know. 
Uh, and certainly, I hope you're not trying to give him advice thinking he needs it. I mean, just ponder that. If God needed your information and advice, you know, the rest of us are wondering why we would pray to him at all. It, it, that's not it, right? To inform God or give advice to God, no. So why pray then at all? Well, there's some mystery here, right? I mean, even just thinking about relating with someone who's all wise, all powerful and eternal, that's gonna lead to some mystery. But you know what? This mystery didn't seem to bother Jesus, for instance, at all. God's sovereignty shouldn't dissuade us from prayer. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 6, verses seven to eight. He said, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases the Gentiles do. They think they'll be heard for their many words. Verse eight, don't be like them for, for what? For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Did you hear that? Jesus said, your father knows what you need before you ask him. So what's Jesus' conclusion? Because the father knows everything already, don't bother praying? No, it's the opposite. Verse nine, pray then like this. Pray, God is sovereign, so pray. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think of what this prayer is. We're, we're, we're remembering our identity before God through the gospel, that he is our father and we are his children. We're remembering that he is transcendent and sovereign and powerful in heaven. And we're praying that his name will be hallowed. That doesn't mean, God, we hope one day you'll be holy. No, it means God show us how holy you are how glorious you are. Show the world how glorious you are. Verse 10, your kingdom come. Let your reign be seen. Your will be done. As God's people pray this, God pours out his judgments that display his glory and begin the coming of his kingdom. That's what Revelation is telling you. So friend, you should be encouraged, encouraged to pray. I know there's more questions. Sometimes there aren't answers. If you want to discuss any of those questions, I'd love to, to uh, discourse with you about that. But we remember here, prayer is a fundamental part of our fellowship with God through Jesus. You are to pray to him. There is to be a, a give and take as we hear from his word and he speaks, as we sit in silence before him, as we respond to him in prayer. We are to have a, a, a fellowship and relationship with him through prayer. Second, prayer conforms our hearts to God's heart as we remember him and his ways. Get a new perspective. In conversion, we get a new set of desires and we wanna pray towards who God is and what he delights in, what he wants. But in this passage, we also see that prayer is partnership with God. There's an amazing way we team with God in what he's doing. It's incredible to think we have a part to play in the seventh seal of revelation. It's our prayers. So this last principle for prayer then is to pray with disciplined trust disciplined trust. This trust comes from knowing that how long, O Lord, will be answered with trumpets. God will act. And so we ought to be disciplined then in praying until he does. Luke 18, Jesus taught his disciples to pray and not lose heart 
He knew, he knew that sometimes we would lose heart in prayer. So let's follow our Lord's teaching in that. Let's pray the themes of the prayer he gave his disciples for our lives and for our world. Let's pray every day over our task list that we need to accomplish in dependence on him. Pray over your church directory. Pray for every one of your brothers and sisters with whom we fellowship. Pray the prayer sheet we've sent out this week, devoting time to prayer for ourselves, our community, our world. But let's keep praying Look what Jesus said at the end of that teaching in Luke 18. Keep praying, don't lose heart. Luke 18, seven, Jesus says, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. God's gonna answer these prayers according to his time in his way. Nevertheless, Jesus says, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? It's interesting to see that to Jesus, the issue in question is not God's faithfulness in answering the prayer. The issue in question <clears throat> when it comes to faithfulness is ours. Will we be faithful to pray? Let's remember who God is Let's see that he values the prayers of his people. And let's trust that he will certainly answer them for his glory, in his timing, in his way. It will be good, it will be right. Let's keep praying. Heavenly Father, we confess uh, how difficult prayer is for us. Uh, we confess our doubts, our sense of weakness. We thank you for this invitation to come before you and to pray. We thank you that Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done has made the way so that we can enjoy fellowship with you, that we could come boldly before your throne. Lord, I pray for anyone listening to this who is not yet a Christian, that you would be drawing them to yourself, that they would trust themselves to Jesus Christ and be aware of the fellowship they now have with you as a child of God. Lord, I pray for those of us who do know you, Lord, that you would inspire us to be faithful in prayer, that we would be humble and submissive, that we would be dependent, that we would lean on the gospel, that we, but that we would come boldly, that we'd be faithful, Lord, knowing that you have ordained it to be, that you act definitive, definitively according to our prayers. We thank you for these great promises. We pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, church, we now want to uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We wanna do it in the context of prayer. So I'm gonna start with Psalm 130. And uh, I'm just asking you to read it with me and uh, to pray it with me as we begin. Psalm 130, verses one to four. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Verse three, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. As we prepare to take the supper, let's first confess together. Uh, we'll confess corporately first. We read this with me. 
Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We're truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. I'll now invite you just to take take a, a brief moment to privately in your heart confess your sin to God and ask for his forgiveness in Christ. Let's return now to Psalm 130. We'll begin in verse five. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And church, we know that God has kept his promises in this passage through Jesus Christ. Through the perfection of Christ, there is plentiful redemption. Through God's steadfast love, as we trust Christ, we are forgiven and made right with him. So let's remember then what Jesus gave us on that night when he shared the supper with his disciples. Let's read Luke twenty-two nineteen. When he took bread, he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So let's grab our bread together, church, and take, eat, remember, and believe that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was broken for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. Thank you, Lord. And let's take, drink, remember, and believe that the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ was shed so that we might inherit his kingdom forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for going to such lengths to bring us to yourself. Thank you, Lord, that your body broken, the knowledge of your death for us, trust in you and what you've done, it, it feeds us, uh, it brings us near. Lord, we thank you for your blood shed that all our sins uh, are forgiven. That we've, been, we've been set free uh, to know you, to love you, to serve you. Lord, we pray that as we go from here, our hearts will be full of joy in your love for us, uh, that we be full of the spirit in uh, living for you, your glory and your kingdom. And Lord, that we be full of passion to pray, to pray to you so that we might be conformed to you and uh, that in your sovereign will, Lord, you would act, your kingdom would come, your will would be done in your timing for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week, church. It's wonderful to be with you. We love you. God bless you. We'll see you later. Thank you for listening. 
and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.